sentire media. Prima il fragore dell'onda. First the thunder of the wave. Poi il silenzio della morte. Then the silence of death. Mai l'oblio della memoria. Never let it slip from memory. The warning signs came early, four years before. Four years to take all the necessary steps, to make sure the people involved could be safe. Four years to save thousands of lives. The inhabitants knew. The few journalists who were brave enough to stand up to the government and the all-powerful Sade Electric Company, the private organization responsible for the project in question, also knew. Their voices, however, were drowned out. The warnings covered up in the name of politics, progress and profit. This is the story of what was supposed to be one of the great architectural marvels of the time. The highest dam in the world. An element of pride for Italian architecture and hydroelectric engineering. It became instead one of our nation's greatest tragedies of the 20th century. This is the story of Vaillant. You could trace the origin of this story back to 1929, to a remote alpine valley in the northeastern Veneto area, close to the border with Friuli Venezia Giulia. There were two small villages at the time, Erto and Casso, being the only two settlements in the area and not having anyone else, they hated each other. A river ran past the two villages, the Vaillant. The place was so remote that until 1915 there had not been a proper road to get there. Even then it had not been created by the local authorities but by the enemy at the time the Austrians, so they could attack the Italian positions in the rear. It is upon that Austrian road that in 1929, two odd characters appeared and started to roam around the valley and mountains, taking pictures, measurements and rock samples from different areas. These two men were 36-year-old engineer Carlo Semenza, we'll call him the engineer, and the 47-year-old geologist Giorgio Dal Piazz, we'll call him the geologist. The two had been sent to the area by the Sade Company, Società Adriatica di Elettricità, a private electric company. The owner of Sade was a rather eccentric character by the name of Giuseppe Volpi, Count of Misurata. In 1922, after the march on Rome, and the fascist coup by Benito Mussolini, Volpi decided that he liked this fascism business and signed up to the party in the same 1922. He must have been a very good fascist as he rose very quickly and the next year became the finance minister. This meant that he could decide which companies to assign contracts to. For example, his own company. Would you look at how that worked out? 
Fast forward now to the autumn of 1943. Anyone with a knowledge of Italian history would know that this was a tumultuous period. The armistice had been announced on the 8th of September and no clear instructions had been laid out, leaving many Italians to the mercy of the occupying German forces, with the option of either joining them or taking up arms and heading for the hills. Giuseppe Volpi, owner of the Sade Company, suddenly realised he was actually an ardent anti-fascist and headed to Switzerland. It is in this moment of chaos that the Sade Company managed to pull off an organisational miracle, getting a government commission to convene and approve their Grande Vaillant project. The fact that the commission had not actually reached the legal quorum to make an official decision was a technicality that didn't really worry Sade. What was this project? You see, in their exploration, the engineer and the geologist had found the perfect place for a dam for a hydroelectric plant, something the Italians had become very good at making since there were no substantial sources of fossil fuels. The location was known as the Devil's Gorge, a narrow entrance just under the villages of Erto and Casso to the next valley, between two mountains, Monte Salta and Monte Toc. This last meaning various things in different local dialects, but one of them being rotten. The Vaillant River, over the centuries, had dug here one of the deepest gorges in the Alps, as it then headed out into the valley where the main town was known as Lungarone. The Second World War ended, and Italy began what came to be known as its economic miracle, thanks to the funding from the Marshall Plan. In 1948, the Grande Vaillant project was presented to the little town council of Erto, who, seeing all this official government-approved documentation, approved it right away without bothering to look into it too much. Therefore, they didn't really notice that, as well as public land, they also accepted the sale of private land. This meant that by the time construction started in 1956, the inhabitants in the area, mostly farmers who depended on the land, got a nasty shock. They were faced with a choice. Sell their land to the Sade company at about a third of what its value was, or try and resist paying legal and bureaucratic fees in judicial proceedings that could drag on for years with the risk of losing the land anyway and getting nothing for it. The project also included the construction of a police station. Not that the quiet little towns needed much policing, but there were now a lot of expropriation notices to be delivered to angry farmers. It goes without saying that the locals did not have much love for the project, and a seven-year struggle began. The inhabitants did not have much on their side. There was a local newspaper, the Gazzettino, but it would only publish the official press releases of the Sade company. Why is that, you might ask? Well, who should own this paper but our old friend and acquaintance, the fascist-turned-anti-fascist, Count Giuseppe Volpi, owner of the Sade Company. 
There was one voice willing to speak out for the rights of the inhabitants. A young woman by the name of Clementina Merlin. We'll call her the journalist. She was indeed a journalist and was very vocal, not only about the expropriation of land, but also the dangers inherent in the project. There was one big issue. She was a communist, writing for the Unità, the official organ of the Italian Communist Party. And in a situation in which both the national and local government was run by the Christian Democrats, no one was going to pay much attention to a silly little communist journalist. Work got underway in 1956, with 400 workers being used, and the dam began to rise at a rate of 60 centimetres a day. Almost immediately, the head of the project felt that it wasn't enough. He was also an old acquaintance of ours, Carlo Semenza, the engineer who had come to the area to do an inspection back in 1929. The initial plan was to create a reservoir of around 58 million cubic metres of water. On the 1st of April 1957, a variation was presented that would bring the total reservoir up to 150 million cubic metres of water and raise the dam to 261 metres, making it the highest in the world at the time. The signature of the engineer alone was not enough for the approval. It required the signature of a geologist. So the engineer called his old rock collecting buddy, the geologist Giorgio Dal Piazza, who had meanwhile retired from an illustrious career as a university professor. He said that the initial plan had already seemed rather ambitious to him and that this new variation made him tremble. Yet, he told the engineer to write the report himself and he would just sign off on it. So, from an initial 58 million cubic meters of water, now a reservoir of 150 million was to be created between Mount Salta and Mount Toc, the Rotten Mountain. Work started on the new variation before official approval came along. This was a recurring theme in the story of Vaillant. Work would just continue with the knowledge that sooner or later government approval would come, and it always did. With a recommendation this time, however, for a new geological inspection, which the company said it would of course do right away. Maybe. Sometime. It is at this point in the story that we have perhaps the only official or technician to actually try and raise doubts and stop the whole process. It wasn't even an issue regarding the dam itself. You see, the initial project had included a footbridge over the reservoir for those whose lands would have been on the other side of the newly formed lake, and children who would have to go to school all the way around to the other side of the valley. Now, this was no longer possible, because they could not, in the new position, anchor said bridge to the crumbly surface of the mountain. Wait, what? The mountain is too crumbly for a footbridge, but it will have no trouble resisting 150 million cubic meters of water? Of course not, you silly. Don't you worry your little farmer's brain over that. On the surface, it's all crumbly, but further down you can be sure that it's solid as, well, solid as a rock. 
if there were to be any sort of landslide, it would only be superficial, a small pebble in a large lake. As far as the road went, no problem. We'll build a nice new road going around. You'll enjoy the walk anyway. It's only a couple of hours each way. It is for the lack of a report for the construction of this road that the only suspension of the project we mentioned above came about. It was Renzo Desidera, a civil engineer from the nearby city of Belluno to raise a doubt. We'll call him the good engineer. Within 24 hours, the Sade company had complained to their buddies in government in Rome, and hey presto, the meddling good engineer was relieved from his post by the minister Giuseppe Togni. The new ring road was built without the inspection or approval needed using a loophole that allowed the building of temporary infrastructure for the running of a building site. So, trees were temporarily cut down and houses were temporarily completely demolished to make way for a temporary paved asphalt road and work continued. By the way, as well as the road, the new larger reservoir also required more land grabs. Then, in March of 1959, the first warning sign we spoke of that could not be ignored occurred. Around 10 kilometers from the Vaillant Dam was a previous one built by Sade at a place called Pontese. Here, the mountains around the reservoir had started to move. Trees were bending over. Yellow patches started appearing on the water and cracks in the ground. A point was identified near Pontese in which the land was starting to slide towards the reservoir. The fear was that the landslide could accelerate and would impact the artificial lake, potentially causing a huge destructive wave. They tried to remedy the situation by lowering the level of the reservoir, but soon discovered that it had been the water that was actually holding up the landslide. As the level decreased, the landslide accelerated. 24-hour surveillance was set up to monitor the situation. Surveillance meaning a single person who had the use of a bicycle. On the 22nd of March, 1959, the surveillance in question was a man with a limp named Arcangelo Tiziani. Tons of earth and rock came crashing down, hit the reservoir, washing away poor Tiziani. There had been victims during the construction of the dam who had died from work-related accidents. This was different. This time, it seemed that nature was rebelling. Now the families of the area, as well as the anger from the expropriations, also started to feel afraid. Could the same thing happen to the much larger Vaillant Dam? What's more, so far the question had regarded mostly the small towns of Erto and Casso above the dam and their fractions. What about Longarone? the larger town in the valley below the dam. A local consortium was formed, and the Unita journalist Tina Merlin went on the attack again, denouncing the Sade company's bullying of the local inhabitants and the potential dangers of the dam. 
The company tried to silence her by suing her for spreading false news to disturb the peace. She would win the trial in an unusually short time for the Italian justice system, thanks also to the testimony of the local inhabitants. In only six hours, it was made clear enough to the judges that there was very clear and very present danger and that Tina Merlin had spoken nothing but the truth. At this point, the question could no longer be ignored. Could the same thing that had happened at Pontese also happen at Vaillant? Well, someone said, what does the geological study say? The Sade company had finally got round to getting one done and had hired one of the great experts of the age, Professor Leopold Müller of Austria. We'll call him opinion number one. Opinion number one had analysed the two sides of the future reservoir. Mount Salta presented no evident danger. As far as Mount Toc was concerned, Muller, opinion number one, found a potential landslide with a vertical width of around 600 metres, several metres deep, and with a horizontal front of two kilometres. It was around 70 times larger than the landslide at Pontese. Engineer and head of the project Carlos Amensa, as well as the board of the Sade company, didn't like these findings at all, so they decided to get a second opinion. Pietro Caloi, we'll call him opinion number two, said instead that everything was fine, no need to panic. The Sade company liked that opinion a lot more, but with two contrasting opinions, they were more or less obliged to get a tie-breaking third. Engineer Carlos Amensa had just the man for the job, a young geologist who had studied under his old buddy Giorgio del Piazza by the name of Edoardo Semenza. Hold on, Carlo Semenza, head of the project, hired a man with the same surname? Coincidence? No, it was his son. Let's call him Junior, or opinion number three. Now, you may be expecting that this act of nepotism leads to Sade getting the opinion number three that they wanted, i.e., just like opinion number two, everything is okay, just go right ahead. However, Eduardo Semenza Jr. was made of sterner stuff. He did all his studies and observations and measurements, and opinion number three came up with the findings that confirmed those of opinion number one that there was indeed a huge potential landslide upon Mount Toc and that it might have stayed there for centuries to come unless... Uh, unless what? Unless you fill up the valley below the landslide with millions of cubic metres of water. Engineer said to Junior, Are you sure, son? This is not good for my life's project. Are you sure you don't want to tone things down a little? No, Dad, this is what I found. OK, well, let's have your old professor, Giorgio Dal Piazza, whom we call geologist, look at the report and what he says goes. As 1960 came around, the Vaillant Dam was completed and the first tests to start creating the reservoir were started. The families who had resisted to the last were forced to leave, at times heading back with makeshift rafts 
to get their belongings from their houses now underwater. As the reservoir filled, Mount Tok started to make noises. Yellow patches appeared in the water. Cracks formed in the earth. On the 4th of November 1960, the landslide started to move. A whole metre. Sade quickly fenced off the area, but the change was visible from afar. Opinion number two, Pietro Caloi, whom Sade liked, changed his mind. Evidently, since his research, the rock had somehow deteriorated. Now, all three opinions concurred. All the geologists were fired. Who needed all that doom and gloom anyway? The winter between 1960 and 1961 was a cold one, and the landslide stopped moving. Perhaps things would work out after all. The Sade company continued to play around with the water levels, obviously without waiting for authorization. It would come eventually. In the spring of 1961, the engineer, Carlos Emenza, died, and soon after, the geologist, Giorgio Dal Piazza, they would not see the consequences of what they had built. The management of the project passed to Alberto Biadene. We'll call him New Engineer. 1962 came around, and it was now clear that the changes in the water level corresponded to the earthquakes the inhabitants were feeling. New Engineer made sure this information didn't get out. New Engineer had a university make a scale model of the dam, the valley and the mountains around it to see what effects the landslide would have when impacting the reservoir. The results indicated catastrophic consequences and the report stayed safely locked in the drawers of the New Engineer and the researcher until it was later stolen by an assistant when it was too late. The experiment also indicated that the situation could still be salvaged as long as the water did not go beyond the safety level of 700 meters. Staying under that level would mean that any resulting impact wave should be contained by the dam itself. However, 1963 brought new elements to the story. The government decided to nationalize the energy industry, and Sade would have to sell to the new national NL company. If sell they must, they wanted to get the most out of it. 15 meters may not seem like a lot vertically, but multiply it by the whole surface of the reservoir, and that is a lot more water, a lot more potential energy, a lot more profit, a lot more sale value for the company. Procedures to increase the level to 715 meters proceeded, and the mountain started to groan. At the beginning of September, an earthquake brought down a house in Erto. The alarmed citizens through their council wrote to the Sade company to ask for explanations on the 3rd of September. Biadene, new engineer, did not answer until the 12th simply to let them know that there was nothing to worry about. That same day, the giant landslide on Mount Tok moved again, 
and something became alarmingly clear. There weren't just different pieces breaking off and sliding down, but the whole thing, 600 meters by two kilometers, was moving as a single section. By the end of September, Sade finally decided to issue a warning to evacuate the towns of Erto and Casso above the dam. No warning, no recommendation was made for the town of Longarone in the valley below the dam. On the 9th of October 1963, the landslide accelerated 50 times faster. At 6pm, new engineer got into his car and told his driver to head for Venice, leaving one man, a certain Rittmeier, to oversee the situation. Rittmeier would soon call new engineer Biadena in alarm to say that he could actually see the mountain moving in the distance. Biadena told him not to worry and to stay put. For his role in the tragedy, Alberico Biadene, after an eight-year trial, would be sentenced to four years in prison. He would end up serving one year of that sentence. He then died in 1985, believing that he had simply done his duty. The Sade company, having sold the dam over to the new national NL company, was not responsible and ceased operations officially before the tragedy. The new national NL company would eventually lose a civil case to the survivors and families of the victims, as well as the local councils, but then managed to set up a whole series of legal obstacles, and in the end, the matter was settled out of court for a penance. On the evening of the 9th of October, Igino Mazzorana was playing in the square of Lungaroni with his friends. It was now time for dinner, so he said goodbye until tomorrow. Of Igino's class of 20, five would live to see the next day. He went to bed that night with his three-year-old brother. When his bed and most of his house was launched around 300 metres away, he was not able to hold on to the little boy. Only after days in hospital did the grandmother of the nine-year-old Igino have the courage to tell him that he had also lost his parents. Michaela Coletti was 12 on that day. She remembers lying in bed and hearing voices and then her father, who worked at the dam, leaving late at night. She would not hear his voice again. Then she remembered the sound of thunder like she had never heard before in her life and just had time to think how strange it was to have such a powerful summer storm in autumn when she started to hear the screech of metal being dragged along and felt herself practically flying. She remembers thinking for some reason that she had lost her eyes and covered her face, a gesture which may have saved her life as she was found buried in rubble 400 metres away, with just her foot sticking out. As well as her father, Michaela lost two of her siblings that night. The evening of the 9th was a busy one in Lungarone. There was an interesting novelty. They were showing the Champions League match between Glasgow Rangers and Real Madrid just one hour after the match had already started, so almost live. 
Arnaldo Olivier was there and watched the match, but although he was a big sports fan, he decided to head home as Real were up 2-0. He had a sort of feeling, a feeling that saved his life. The other spectators at the bar, which was one of the only places in town that actually had a television set, would never live to know that Real ended up winning 6-0. At a certain point during the match, the electricity went off. After loud complaints, everyone went out to see what was going on. The lights were out everywhere, and in the distance up at the dam, there came an eerie light, and then a sound like no other they had ever heard. Many of the survivors of Vaillant have the same thing to say, that there was a sound that was impossible to convey if you had never heard it. Many never actually lived to feel the impact of the wave. It was preceded by a powerful wind with the accumulated pressure of a nuclear bomb stuffed into a small valley, a foul-smelling wind full of dirt and debris that sent objects and people flying, tearing off their clothes and skin. At 10.39pm on the 9th of October 1963, 260 million cubic metres of rock crashed as a compact front into the Vaillant Reservoir. The resulting waves went in different directions. Incredibly, one wave actually went over the town of Casso, where although the village was bombarded by debris from the wave and, and there was widespread destruction, there were no victims among those who had refused to leave. Erto was saved by the rock face that stopped the wave. Other smaller settlements were not so lucky. Then there was the wave that went in the other direction, down towards Longarone, where the inhabitants were given no warning. The wave that was estimated at about 250 metres went over the dam, bringing death and destruction in its wake. Ironically, the dam itself, which in the end had been built well, withstood the impact and still stands to this day. The return wave then covered up and flattened everything. Longarone was no more. That was the incredible scene of eerie desolation that the first emergency workers to arrive on the scene found. The next day, soldiers, firemen, police and volunteers could be seen standing shoulder to shoulder on a bridge with long sticks down into the waters to form a sort of giant comb to avoid the bodies being washed away along the Piave River and out into the sea. In the town of Fortogna, there is a monumental cemetery to commemorate the victims. Some are actually buried there, many elsewhere, and many others were never found. There is a marker for each of them. There are 1,910 markers. At the entrance to the cemetery, there is writing in 12 different languages. First, the thunder of the wave. Then the silence of death. Never let it slip from memory.
I hope you enjoyed this episode on the tragedy of the Vaillant, a dark stain on Italy's past. If we remember this, it is thanks very much to actor Marco Paolini, who brought the Vaillant tragedy back to the forefront with his theatre production. You can find it online, and I highly recommend you have a look at it. Also, the book by journalist Tina Merlin sheds a lot of light on the subject. Finally, I would personally like to thank Massimiliano Tacconi for the idea behind this episode and for supplying some of the research material. Remember, if you so wish, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com And you can also find more information at the website at the same URL. Thank you very much for listening to this special episode. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.